0: passage that i'm going to be reading this morning is uh 1 peter chapter 5 verse 8 through 14 be sober and alert your enemy the devil like a roaring lion is on the prowl looking for someone to devour resist him strong in your faith because you know that your brothers and sisters throughout the world are enduring the same kind of suffering and after you have suffered for a little while The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him belongs the power forever. Amen. Through Sylvanius, whom I know to be a faithful brother, I I was writing to you briefly. In order to encourage you and testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. The church in Babylon, chosen together with you, greets you. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a loving kiss. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's just open in prayer. Then Father Lord, we just thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for your presence uh, in a world that um, our enemy wants to devour us, Lord, and thank you that you are your are present, Lord. Lord, I especially want to lift up the Lopez family right now as as their, their hearts are grieving uh, the loss of their grandmother and mother. Lord, I just pray that you would comfort them, that you would be pr- very present to them. Lord, I pray for, for Tom this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will work in him, uh, that he, you would allow him to speak the words that come from you lord that you would give him confidence uh, in the things that he has studied lord we just pray this in your name amen
1: this is our last installment of the series on first peter and uh, there's a lot to cover but what i'm going to ask you to do is not worry too much about getting all the outline points and just listen for one essential thing and that is what is the true grace of god What is the true grace of God? Because it will pervade everything that we examine in this final passage. How do you think this would go over as a battalion commander's motivational address to his troops just before a military campaign of very strategic importance? Troops, you need to know That our enemy is exceedingly powerful, utterly ruthless, and completely without mercy. And he's highly, highly motivated. He intends to devour every one of us. Our side is going to suffer greatly in this conflict. In fact, every one of us, every one of us is going to be badly wounded. For some, those wounds will appear to be mortal, fatal. They will take you out of the fight. Our side's going to suffer far more casualties than the enemy's side between now and the end of this war. But we won't lose even one single soldier. You also need to know this. Every wound that you suffer and every companion of yours who falls at your side is going to add to the depth of our enemy's defeat. The measure of our victory will not be the greater casualties that we inflict on our enemy's troops. That's not how this is going to work. See, we're not actually fighting to determine who's going to win this war. That was determined a long, long time ago. And we're the victors. Our victory is already guaranteed. (laughs) The enemy just doesn't know it yet. And what a glorious victory it will be. No, this war isn't about determining who's going to win. It's about two things. It's about making you ready for our king's kingdom And it's about winning defections from the enemy camp to our king's kingdom. One of the most important things that you will do to accomplish both of those objectives is to suffer well in the midst of the conflict. Our victory will be magnified by how well we handle the suffering that we will experience because we are fighting our king's battles. How each of you responds to that suffering will demonstrate your effectiveness as a soldier in our king's army. This is all just as it's supposed to be. This is all just as it must be. Our great king is in control of all of this. He knows exactly what he's doing and he is using every bit of it to magnify his victory. And he promises that we will all get to share in his triumph together with him when this is done. As hard as this experience of intense and relentless warfare is going to be, you need to know that everything that your king is requiring of you is gracious and good. All of it. So stand firm. And stay vigorously engaged in the battle. It's not your typical pep talk before a military campaign, is it? But those are the marching orders that God gives to us through Peter. All that Peter says in these verses follows from his command in the preceding passage to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us at the proper time casting all our anxieties upon Him because we know that He cares for us. It takes humility on our part to buy into a strategy like that because it's not like any strategy that we've ever heard of before and it's certainly not like any strategy that we would come up with. To stay fully engaged in the war that God sets before us in these verses and throughout this letter, we must, we must have a radical shift of understanding about what constitutes well-being. We must embrace definitions of things like grace and victory and well-being that fly in the face of every definition of those words that we've ever known Until we humble ourselves to trust in the divine genius and true grace of God's strategy for prosecuting this war, we will never have both feet in the battle. Our word, our word has to completely give way to his word. In fact, our word has to be completely out of the picture. And in order for us to actually get this, in order for us to be on the same page as our king in the midst of the unrelenting warfare that is set before us, to stand firm against our enemy, there are some things that we have to know. And they're not things that we're going to hear from anyone other than our king We won't find them on billboards or in magazines or in news reports or in university classrooms. We won't even hear them in most churches. But we must hear them. We must know them. We must believe them. We must hold fast to them every single day if we are going to fight this war effectively. The first thing we must know as soldiers in the army of God is who we're up against. We need to know our king's assessment of our enemy. The essence of Peter's command in verse 8 is don't underestimate the enemy. In chapter 1, verse 13, Peter said, gird your minds for action. Be sober. Now he says again, be sober, be alert, vigilant. He's making it very clear that there's a serious threat here that demands steadfast Vigilance on our part. Beloved, in case you haven't figured it out, you wake up every morning behind enemy lines. The prince of the power of the air, of the airwaves, and yes, even of the internet, the commander of the world forces of this present darkness, the one who controls the institutions of this world, is the devil. We are in his territory. It's only his for a while, but make no mistake, it's his. It is the height, the foolishness for us to minimize the resolve, the shrewdness, or the strength of our enemy. If you belong to Jesus Christ through faith in him alone, Satan can't have your soul. But brothers and sisters, he's going after everything else you have that makes you useful to God. And he's holding on to the souls of those who don't yet know Jesus Christ as tenaciously as he possibly can. And if you don't think he takes it seriously to keep them in his grasp, you need to think again. Peter does not pray here that God will bind Satan. Or put some kind of a hedge, a force field around us so that Satan can't really inflict any meaningful harm on us. Have you ever heard Christians ask for that? Perhaps you've asked for it. Don't you think that if that were an option, Peter would have asked for it? Jesus didn't pray for that. The apostles didn't pray for that. In fact, Jesus told Peter in Luke twenty-two thirty-one 31 that Satan had obtained permission to sift all of his disciples like wheat. Jesus didn't say his father had declined Satan's request. He said, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He knew they were going to turn away on the night of his death. But he knew that he was going to bring them back. And he was going to put them to incredibly effective use. That's why we're sitting here today. The only place in the Bible where I find it stated that God put a hedge, a protective barrier, around one of his children to protect him from suffering at the hands of Satan is in the first half of the first chapter of the book of Job. Job had health, he had material prosperity, he had a big family, he had a marvelous reputation in his community, and much influence, all the things that men consider to be well-being. But that's in the first part of the first chapter of a 42-chapter book that's all about the suffering that God allowed Satan to bring upon Job. Not to undo Job, but to teach Job that humility before God, simple faith in God's power and God's goodness and God's justness is worth infinitely more than all the riches and fame and comfort that this world has to give. The hedge that God put around Job was put there just to set the stage for the marvelous work of grace that God would do in Job's heart when he removed that hedge. Ask God to deliver you from the evil one. Jesus taught his disciples to ask for that. When we pray as Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Our faithful Father is eager to answer that prayer. But that does not mean that he prevents Satan from tempting and from attacking us. Satan tempted Jesus and relentlessly sought to stop him from doing what he came to do. And beloved, we, the servants of Jesus, are not greater than our master. Do not ask or expect God to put a force field around you so you never have to actually do battle with the devil by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. If that's what you're asking for, you're asking to be a useless spectator in this world. Tasing Satan every time he tries to mess with you is not in God's battle plan. We will do battle against the fiery arrows of Satan every single day that we remain on this earth waiting for the return of our Savior and Master. And we must never, never trivialize the power or the resolve or the craftiness of our enemy. John Piper points out that the imagery that Peter uses here in verse 8 to describe Satan is very different than the imagery used in some other passages. And there's a reason for that. In Genesis 3, Satan shows up as what? A snake, a serpent. Moses describes that serpent as more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Does that sound like Moses is taking Satan lightly? Moses doesn't mock Satan. He doesn't minimize or trivialize the shrewdness or the effectiveness of Satan's assault against God's image bearers. He presents Satan as the mortal enemy of mankind who skillfully enticed Adam through Eve to elevate his own distorted truth, which isn't true at all, over the truth that God had clearly revealed to his image bearers. And that, of course, brought upon mankind the curse of death and corruption that has afflicted us all ever since. Now, snakes are stealthy, they're sneaky, and they're subtle. They move around in tall grass very quietly, and then they bite their prey, and when their prey is filled with venom, their prey dies. And then they eat their prey, typically by swallowing it whole. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15, There's another image of Satan. Paul speaks of Satan disguising himself as an angel of light. At times, Satan's very deceptive, appearing to be righteous when in fact he is pervasively evil. Satan can be stealthy and subtle. He can be amazingly deceptive. But here, (laughs) Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion. Is there anything subtle about a roaring lion? There's nothing stealthy or sneaky or even particularly deceptive about a roaring lion. A roaring lion is just plain scary. It's important for us to understand why Peter speaks of Satan in these terms in a letter that's all about suffering well for Christ. See, he's talking to persecuted Christians for whom that persecution was heating up seriously even as they received this letter. He's making a very important point about Satan's strategy to use to his own advantage the suffering that God guarantees believers will experience during our time here. God has a marvelous and redemptive purpose in that suffering. But make no mistake, Satan is intent on accomplishing an entirely different purpose through that same suffering. Imagine that as you're walking back to your car this morning after church, you hear a lion's roar coming from just around the corner of the building. And you can tell it's clearly coming from the vicinity of where you parked your car. What are you going to do? You're going to keep walking that direction? What if God had commanded you to walk on that very sidewalk in that very direction and to keep walking by the most direct route to your car, directly toward the roar? Satan is counting on the fact that if he roars loudly enough, you're going to stop walking that direction. He's counting on the fact that if he roars loudly enough, you're going to decide that God is just asking too much of you. You're going to do what seems far more sensible to you. You're going to go call Uber to take you home right after you call the Richardson Animal Control and and tell them to bring their biggest cage. Satan wants to use the threat of great suffering, of severe persecution, and even of death. To silence our proclamation of Christ, to turn us around from following Christ, and thereby to render us useless as soldiers in the army of Christ. If he can accomplish just one of those two things, to shut us up or to stop us from following Christ, he's fine with that. Good news that is made to look like bad news because of the fear-controlled lives of those who are proclaiming it is just as useful to Satan as bad news. Satan has plenty of tricks up his sleeve that are subtle and deceptive, but when it comes to suffering, Satan has a tool that requires no subtlety at all. All he has to do is roar loudly enough. He's still roaring If you've been paying attention the last couple of weeks and the last few days, he's out there roaring loudly. I just saw a news update this morning that more police officers were executed in Baton Rouge this morning. Satan has a tool in suffering that is very, very effective. Through Peter, God tells us that the threat is severe. He wants us to walk into that threat with eyes wide open. He wants us to be sober and alert, never under, underestimating the nature or the magnitude of the threat. We need to know our enemy. But we also need to know our armaments. In a war, armaments are both offensive and defensive equipment to do battle. In verse 9, Peter reminds us of the exceedingly powerful, unsecret weapon that God has given to us. The verse begins like this, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that. Now in the New American Standard Translation, the word your is in italics. That means it's not in the original. You know what is in the original? The old King James and the new King James render it well. What's actually there is the word "thee." The straightforward command here is to resist the devil firm in the faith. The faith is the faith-worthy doctrine. It is the truth about God that he has revealed in the Bible. Peter is most certainly talking about our faith here, our response of trust, but the Bible never, never talks about our faith as if it somehow exists in a vacuum. Our faith always has an object. And that object is our faith-worthy Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. And our faith always has content. And that content is the faith-worthy propositions and promises found in the living and active Word of God concerning our Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. What weapon... Did Jesus take up to resist the temptations of Satan after he had been physically weakened beyond anything you or I can imagine by fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, as recorded in Matthew 4 and Luke 4? Jesus countered every temptation of Satan with one thing. The truth revealed in God's Word. He was tempted three times, and three times he responded from two chapters of Deuteronomy. In Ephesians 6, Paul describes the various pieces of armor and weaponry with which we do battle in the face of all the forces of Satan, arrayed against the people of God. But Peter bundles all of those armaments into just one great, unsecret weapon. And that fiercely powerful, decisively effective weapon is the faith delivered to the people of God through the prophets and apostles. It is the truth in which we place our trust. The same imperishable seed by which Peter said we were born again and by which we now grow in respect to salvation. It is the precious and magnificent promises of God fulfilled only in Jesus Christ, it is that weapon. And is that weapon essentially defensive or offensive? Many would say it's defensive. After all, Peter doesn't say attack the devil; he says resist the devil. But listen to what James says in James chapter four, verse seven: Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So let me ask you a question. If your enemy is coming at you, he has a quiver full of arrows, he has a great big sharp spear, he has a nice sharp dagger in his belt, and all you have is a defensive shield over one arm, will your resistance to his attacks cause him to run away from you? Not unless he's a wimp. Satan's not a wimp. Beloved, it's very interesting, Paul uses the same wording in Ephesians 6. The shield of the faith, which, with which Paul says you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, is not merely a piece of defensive armor. It is inviolably connected to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our trust is in the Lord of the Word and in the Word of the Lord. And it is his word that puts Satan to flight. That's not a once and done proposition. We have to put that weapon to use daily and often, and that means we have to have it with us and in us. Our armaments are not like the world's armaments. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. Does that sound like a defensive-only weapon? We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Your trust in the trustworthiness of God and in the trustworthiness of His revealed promises. That trust, that faith, is a weapon divinely powerful for the destruction of Satan's fortresses. And the rest of this passage is about how we keep that weapon locked and loaded. It's about that which firmly establishes us in the faith so we will prosecute God's war effectively. It's about trusting in the real promises of God, not in promises that look better to us than the real ones. It's about us staking our entire well-being on the true grace of God, not on some lousy imitation of grace that claims to exempt us from suffering. There is no grace in this life apart from suffering. To stay the course in resisting Satan, firm in the faith, you have to know some things about our king's strategy and count them to be true. Specifically, you and I need to know some things about the connection between our suffering and our king's battle plan. There are three things... That Peter says you and I need to know and count on when it comes to our experience of suffering in the midst of this war. First, know that you will suffer much in this war, but you will never suffer alone. He says resist Satan firm in your faith, knowing that, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. We need to know that we share the experience of suffering for Christ's sake together with all the saints of God all over the world. (laughs) I got a real charge this morning out of looking around to see the missionaries who have been all over this world fighting this fight, proclaiming this marvelous gospel. We're in it with them and they're in it with us. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But we will never be alone in that suffering. It's important for us to know that. The first thing we need to know about God's strategy in our suffering is that we'll suffer much, but we'll never suffer alone. The second thing is that we will suffer much... But not because we're losing. Peter says the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now that's pretty interesting language. How often do you think of suffering as an accomplishment? That's what Peter says it is. The suffering experienced by believers because we are believers is an accomplishment. It's not something that happens to us. It's something strategic. It's something purposeful. It's something orchestrated by our King. In the wars that most humans know anything about, the side that suffers most generally loses the war. Not so in the war in which you and I are engaged every day as followers of Christ. Our suffering for Christ's sake does not mean we're losing. In fact, our participation in Christ's suffering here and now is the clearest reminder, the most vivid evidence that God has given to us that we're winning this war. Read First Peter 4, verses 12 to 14 again. Now how can we buy into this proposition that that astounding approach to waging war can possibly work? It's simple. It already has worked. All we have to do is look at what God already accomplished through the most severe and most unjust suffering that anyone has ever experienced, and that's the suffering of Jesus Christ unto death on the cross. That tells us everything we need to know about what God accomplishes through suffering. Peter said earlier in this letter, He, Jesus, Himself, bore our sin in His body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, which, by the way, was our theme in the worship this morning. For by His wounds, you were healed. By His wounds, you and I, who belong to Him, were healed. And through our wounds, beloved, through our wounds... That marvelous, everlasting healing accomplished at the cross of Jesus Christ is being extended to many, many others all over this world. That is an exceedingly great accomplishment that God brings about through our suffering. When we suffer well, God uses our hardship to pull lost men, women, and children out of the darkness into His marvelous light, just like He did with us. Our suffering does not mean we're losing. By the divine genius and power of God, our suffering is exactly how we're winning. We're not winning by inflicting greater casualties on the enemy's troops than they're inflicting on us. We're winning through the defection of the enemy's troops into the kingdom of our King. The way we handle suffering is the very most powerful means by which our king is using us to bring about those defections. Beloved, a comfortable life will not make you a participant in that process. Our suffering also happens to be the very most powerful means by which our king is preparing us for his kingdom. Peter's been talking about that divine preparation of the people of God ever since the first chapter of this letter. The suffering that is part and parcel of following Christ is a fiery ordeal that does what? It refines, it purifies, like the furnace that purifies gold. It doesn't destroy, brothers and sisters. The suffering that God orchestrates in your life does not destroy. It strengthens, it purifies, it prepares you for glory. And it makes you useful to bring others into that glory by God's doing. Does that sound like a curse or a blessing? The first thing we need to know about God's strategy in our suffering is that we will suffer much, but never alone. The second is we will suffer much, but not because we're losing (laughs) anything but. And the third thing we need to know about God's strategy in our suffering is that we will suffer much, but only for a little while. Peter begins verse 10 by saying, And after you have suffered for a little while. And then he goes on and he tells us the outcome of that suffering, and we'll get to that in a minute. Brothers and sisters, we need to know that we will only have to endure the pain of living as strangers and aliens in this cursed place for a little while. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Does that sound like a curse or a blessing? He goes on to say, while we look not at the things which are seen, it's very important, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are unseen are eternal. I don't know about you, but I can't really imagine the despair experienced by people who actually believe that there's no God, no eternal existence, and that this life is it. If I even thought that was possible, I'd be the biggest narcissist the world ever saw. I'd do whatever I thought would make my life safe, interesting, exciting, pleasant, fun, and comfortable. You know anybody who's living that way? I wouldn't even consider getting any closer to suffering mine or anyone else's than I was forced to. The number of people who believe exactly that, that this life is all there is, is at an all-time high and it's growing exponentially in this generation. But brothers and sisters, for us who belong to Jesus Christ, the time that we have in these mortal bodies is just a subatomic dot at the beginning of an eternal line of glorious life in the kingdom of God. We need to know and count as true daily that we will suffer much, but not alone. We will suffer much, but not because we're losing. We will suffer much but only for a little while. And we need to know this too. We need to know the outcome. We whose trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose trust is the Lord Jesus Christ, possess the greatest advantage that has ever existed in the history of warfare. We know the outcome. In all other wars that men have ever waged, the outcome has been uncertain. But waging God's war is not like waging any other war. Because we're not fighting in the uncertain hope of achieving a victory. We're fighting with the guaranteed hope of a glorious victory that was settled before any of us existed. Verse 10 brings us right back to where Peter started this letter. Brings us back to our living hope. This is the great, eminently practical perspective changer. There is a powerful worldview-changing contrast right here in verses 10 and 11 that Peter has actually been laying out for us throughout this whole worldview-changing epistle. And it's the contrast between what will be true for a little while and what will be true forever. The suffering of this present time Is fleeting. It's only for a while. Then comes glory. Peter says, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Some of you might be thinking, but Tom, the the promise that God will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish us is a promise that applies right now. And you'd be absolutely right. We are way too quick to apply an either-or filter (laughs) to God's precious and magnificent promises as if they only apply either later or now. They always apply in both cases. The finishing out of God's work to conform us to Christ is most assuredly a a future event. God, who already delivered us from the eternal penalty of our sin and from the controlling, enslaving power that sin once had over us, is also going to deliver us once and for all from the very presence of sin and from every vestige of the curse. To stand before him spotless and blameless forever. Made fit to dwell in his presence not by anything at all that we have done, but entirely by his gracious doing in Jesus Christ. But God has already begun that wonderful, refining, purifying work in us. He's doing it right now. Today. And what's so cool about the promise that Peter gives us here is that God hasn't delegated that refining work to anyone else. He emphatically declares that God himself is doing that work. Nobody else. It's not angels who are conforming us to Christ. It's not even situations. It's God himself. It's the Holy Spirit who lives within every child of God, who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that you can ask or imagine, not to change your situation, beloved, (laughs) but to change you and to use you to do supernaturally powerful things in God's creation. God himself. And he's going to finish what he started. Peter says he has called you To His eternal glory in Christ. Oh man, I can only just get a glimpse of what that means. But I know it's really good. (laughs) Your inevitable destiny, if Jesus is the one you're trusting instead of you, is God's eternal glory in Jesus Christ. His glorious kingdom... His eternal inheritance, Jesus' own and eternal inheritance, that's your inheritance. That's your destiny. If you're a child of God, you are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. His eternal glory is going to prove all the glories of this world to have been nothing but lousy, pathetic imitations. Our destiny is to share in His glory. But that's not going to happen, beloved, until we have first shared in His suffering. Peter told us in chapter 4 that we are all in the midst of that painful refining process. A fiery ordeal that God is using to make us holy and to make us useful for His eternal purposes. We will remain in that refiner's furnace as long as we are here on this earth in these mortal bodies. We need to know that that painful refining ordeal is temporary and we need to know that the outcome of that ordeal, the glory for which that ordeal is preparing us by the faithful hand of God, is eternal. That's our living hope. And that's the most encouraging thing that you will ever know, this side of glory. That promise of everlasting glory in the presence of God is the marvelous hope of the people of God that fills God's Word from cover to cover. The pain of this life is temporary. You can't sidestep it. You don't get to be exempt from it. But you can... And will endure it by God's grace. Jesus said in John 6, Of all that you, Father, have given to me, I will lose nothing but raise all of it up on the last day. Everyone who has believed in the name of the Son of God will be raised up on the last day. We're not going to lose any soldiers here. And a huge part of what equips you to endure it is your crystal clear knowledge of the outcome. In verse 12, Peter comes right out and he tells us why he wrote this letter. You've got to love it when someone writes an epistle, a five-chapter epistle, and at the end he tells you exactly why he wrote it. He wrote it to bear witness that this is the true grace of God and to exhort us to stand firm in it. What is the true grace of God? This, everything we've been talking about for the last 18 times together in Peter. This life as the spiritual household of God, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, the people redeemed to be God's own possession. This life in which God calls us to submit willingly and joyfully even to unjust masters. This life of suffering because of our identification with Jesus Christ. This life that looks constantly forward to our living hope in Christ that will do away, the living hope that will do away with all our suffering and bring us into his glorious presence forever. This is all the true grace of God. Every bit of it. Every second of every day of your life as a child of God is the true grace of God. Our King's marching orders to us are all gracious. Every day. Don't let Satan convince you that you've been robbed of the grace of God. Today or any other day when the reality is that God's grace toward you as His beloved child is more certain, more steadfast, more enduring, and more powerful than the gravity that holds your feet on this earth every second. This is all the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This letter is a call to courageous Christianity. It's a call to steadfast, persevering faith and faithfulness. But what's amazing is it's a call to the only life that makes any sense at all for us who have been made the recipients of the true grace of God in Jesus Christ. Be courageous. Stand firm in the faith. Fight the good fight all the way to the end. It's all worth it because our Savior is worthy. And our victory is guaranteed. Where are you as an individual in all of this? Are you one of those eternally blessed recipients of the true grace of God? You need to know the answer to that. If you are still staking your well-being now or in eternity on anything that comes from you, anything that comes from you, none of these marvelous promises apply to you. You're still in your sins, and your eternal destiny is to be separated from the presence of God and from the glory of his power in the place the Bible calls hell. That will all change this very day and forever if you repent of your counterfeit righteousness, of your self-made illusion of well-being and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Only His payment of the eternal penalty for your sin at the cross can cover the debt that you owe to God because of your sin. Only his righteousness will allow you to stand in the presence of our holy God. And only his true grace will equip you to live joyfully and purposefully and powerfully here and now in the midst of this cursed world. Trust him today and be saved forever. Loving Father, this book is uh, powerful beyond our comprehension. But you mean for the words that you set before us to be comprehended, to be heard, to be heeded. You intend for us to submit to the things that Peter has very straightforwardly set before us. You intend, Father, for us who belong to you to live excellent lives in this cursed world in order that that others will be pulled out of the darkness into your glorious, marvelous, astounding light. Father, uh, don't let us walk away from our study of this epistle without being transformed. Do your revolutionary work in our hearts. Make us great soldiers in order that we may advance the coming and glorious kingdom of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask Him in His precious name.